0: the of the
1: of Many of us had an imaginary friend as a child. Or have a child who has an imaginary friend today. It is thought that youthful loneliness motivates creative children to project idealized companions. Their minds are more flexible than ours. They're not embarrassed or ashamed to be seen acting differently. They can sustain a pretend story with great stamina. And children will use their imaginary friend to try to get away with things. They will say they don't want to take a bath because their friend is afraid of the water. Or their friend needs a second scoop of ice cream. And sometimes children get so into the game that they bring adults along with them. Perhaps getting mom or dad to address the unseen friend. Or even make a special place for them at the table. We think of imaginary friends as a phase of childhood. And psychologists tell us there's nothing wrong with a child who has one. It's not typical. But it's also not abnormal. It's a phase. And nothing more. But what if there is more? What if young children are in fact flexing a kind of mental muscle, a psychic muscle? What if there is a potential reality to imaginary friends? A potentiality that has been scrutinized and actualized by the mystic mages of the Far East and now stalks the internet forums of Reddit and 4chan? Today we will look at some people who have explored the idea of bringing your own imagination into the real world, creating a new being. That being is known as the Tulpa. It's an idea that has spread like wildfire across the internet, but has its roots with one French Buddhist woman and her idiosyncratic study of the secret practices of the Tibetan lamas.
0: You are listening to the Spectral Skull Session. Tales from the Twilight World of Myth, Mystery, and Imagination. The idea behind this podcast is that we explore claims about the occult, supernatural, and paranormal from an analytical standpoint. We're open to the existence of a world beyond the five senses, and we dismiss that dogmatic skepticism that insists that any story about the unexplained has to reduce to hallucinations or swamp gas. But we're not committed to any particular theory or philosophy about what the paranormal is. And we realize that, whatever is out there, the answer is likely to be more complicated than any existing model or theory. What we bring to the table is small s skepticism. A skepticism that we throw as much on the mainstream accounts as we do on the supernatural story. Okay, let's get started.
1: So I am Dane.
0: And my name is Chris, and today we'll be talking about the interesting concept of tulpas. First of all, what we should do here is we should, for our listeners, explain what the kind of two flavors of tulpa are. And so I'm going to be discussing tulpa as uh, a psychological phenomenon. So in the modern age, there are people who intentionally... um, uh, some might call it fracture their own identities or create uh, kind of imaginary uh, friends that kind of take on a life of their own uh, for various reasons. And then, of course, we have the psycho uh, paranormal phenomenon. And in the para- forma, paranormal phenomenon, uh, the explanation is that uh, thought forms exist and those thought forms can take on a, a life of their own, so becoming supernatural entities. So, we're going to look at both of these things today. Um, as I get started here, I would like to, you know, kind of talk about modern to- topomancy. So, uh, in modern topomancy, people are essentially creating, uh, we might call it an alternate persona, but the idea is that it's, it's, it's another being that exists within their mind. And so to do this, uh, a person may kind of create a list of characteristics that they want their, imaginary friend tolpa to have and then they begin talking to this Topa and engaging with it they can do that with their mind uh using their inner voice or they also may talk to it aloud and i as i've kind of researched this community of course they say well don't don't talk to your Topa aloud when you're on the street because people are going to think you're crazy um and so over time through this process this uh alternate persona kind of takes on a life of its own and it starts. Uh, having its own volitional will uh, over and above that individual ego or person that originally existed. Uh, any questions regarding this so far, Dane?
1: Crazy to hear. I guess my big question is, are people are people who talk about tulpas, uh, do they have a sense of what the substrate is for this creature that they've created? So is it made of... Is it does it have physical existence independently of the person who created it or is it, um, is it just like made of psychic energy? What what Where? So, what is it made of?
0: Yeah, so my understanding is that for in modern uh they do not believe that the tulpa exists outside of themselves. Uh, ah, okay. Generally speaking, okay, and of course, there can be individual variation here but generally the community at large, these are thought forms that exist within the person. It's a psychological phenomenon. It's not supernatural. Now, there, there may be some in the community who bring a spiritual dimension to this. Um, and, and generally speaking, the topist topomancers believe that uh, this is healthy, that this thing that they're doing is healthy, and that um, it's beneficial to them they they find real benefit in their lives now we can't ignore though the possibility you know what are, that people are intentionally fracturing their own identities right and it might seem that there would be negative health consequences to that so i think we'll start with i want to start with that um, and of course, I'm using that best of websites, Reddit, uh, to jump into this community here. So I'm yeah. reading a comment on Reddit from someone, and there, there's several threads like this that exist. As people create these tulpas, they have their own agency, and then they feel as though the tulpa is taking over and destroying their lives, right? And so that's one, uh, one key component of, of tulpamacy is a person becomes progresses further with their tulpa as it gains more agency. There's this concept called switching. And so the tulpa will allow the alternate persona, the Topa, to kind of take over their body and their life for periods of time. Now, from what I've read, that's always supposed to be volitional, right? Someone's not supposed to lose control of that. However, right. I do see some threads of people saying that that exact thing is happening. That the Topa has gone wild, right? So, yeah. reading this, uh, posted by. You uh, hindus and this is a couple years ago my four-year-old Tolpa is trying to take over the body. she's been through a lot and she and the other tolpas hate me a lot. I'm not sure what they will do to me if they take over as one of my Tulpas feels less pain and another can switch in and out in seconds. I've trained pos- possession two to s- times six months in the first year and third year and there were very little sign of it working. But lately she's been able to move my hand just in minutes after waking up to the point where I couldn't close it myself for half a minute. I don't have a well-developed mind voice, so I can't communicate well with them. They have been actively been trying to ruin as much as possible for me in the last two years. That
1: sounds like a very unpleasant experience. I,
0: I would personally be hesitant to try this. Uh, So uh, in uh, an article for Psychology Today, Samuel Paul Vessier, who's a PhD, is an anthropologist and a cognitive scientist, uh, in his article, Daring to Hear Voices, he talks about topomancers and what they have to teach us about what we can imagine and experience. Um, and so he says, you know, these people, are, they're called the weirdest culture on the Internet. Um, the practice, according to him, has been described as a strange secularization of the paranormal. And yeah, we're talking about a paranormal concept here. But for the Topham masters in the modern age, it's not a paranormal phenomenon, right? It's just completely psychological. Uh, one of the things, yes.
1: it's like a psychologicalization of a phenomenon that historically was supernatural. I'll get into that later about the historical roots of the word Tolpa and the very idea of it.
0: Yeah, a- absolutely. Um, and so we'll kind of, I guess we're kind of doing this backwards, but we live in the modern age. And so it's, uh, I think, good to kind of address it as it is now and then before jumping in the past. Uh,
1: yeah, no, I think we want to get a sense of like, well, why is this important now, right? Yeah past is interesting to explain um and why, why are we using the word tulpa why not just talk about having an imaginary friend mm-hmm. right
0: yeah and we could talk about too there's, there's like different flavors of tulpas and so we'll talk about bronies in a little bit here and the bronies are a group of largely adult men who uh really like my little pony and so they have yeah. uh my little pony pony tulpas so they have these tulpas that are you know cartoon horses that they talk to and engage with um and, and so we'll get to we'll get to that in a moment but um the topamancers. so uh dr bestia talks about topamancers. he says they're not crazy he says they're not uh they're just cultivating fundamentally uh normal dimensions and this is a quote of human cognition and sociality he talks about the kind of different dimensions of this but he says there's are positive experiences for these people. It increases their happiness. They're more confident. Um, and as they in- approach challenging social situations, their TOPA can help them out, right? Um, yeah. And many of these people have identified with particular psychopathological issues like depression, anxiety, ADHD, right? And so, uh, you know, this, I think, is, it could be, and I'm, kind of, I'm bringing this here, saying a, a coping mechanism, right, um, that is healthy. And in the article, he says there's therapeutic possibilities. This could be great. Uh, another interesting point is many people who find the Tulpa community, they've been living with uh, abnormal psychological experiences for years. So they might have been hearing voices, right? So as opposed mm-hmm. to creating a TOLPA. They, they've had these experiences, they've been hearing these voices, and they now have a new framework or context to which to understand those experiences as the TOPA, right? And so that helps them to uh, have a, a new way of understanding themselves that's healthy and allows them to engage in the world in a productive way.
1: So, is it that they're letting the tulpa take over their life when they're in a difficult situation, and the tulpa works through them, or is it that they have like a like a friendly voice, you know, and a friendly uh, companion when they're in difficult situations? So, in this article, he doesn't
0: get that specific uh, at that at that particular juncture. But I, from what I've seen in the tulpa community, it would be both, um, okay. and so so it would probably depend on the individual and so some people would uh switch with their tulpa and allow the tulpa to kind of take the wheel during the situation or it could just be yeah you have this friendly voice this kind of support uh network and people often will have more than one tulpa, right so like a, a crowd cheering for them or something uh that would help them get through the difficult experience
1: yeah i could see how they could both be helpful so the idea of becoming your Tolpa reminds me of 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 just play acting and the way some people get really into a role and they feel, you know, like more confident because they're playing a more confident role, say, in a in a play. Right. And then you might continue to imagine that you are that more com- confident character in real life. Right. Or when it comes to having an imaginary creature sort of following you around and being supportive of you. That could just help you misdirect your, your attention away from the things that are making you anxious. So like a simple example of that it doesn't involve tulpas. People will say if you have to give a talk in front of people and you're uncomfortable, imagine your audience in their underwear, right? And that's nothing more than a device to redirect your attention away from your feelings of being anxious and onto something else. yeah i mean
0: i think that and i think many people uh to the point with public speaking um as we engage in public speaking we do tend to kind of maybe take on a persona right so my my profession as a professor i can remember the first time i ever taught being absolutely nerve-wrackingly nervous right but going in there with those like okay this is what my professors have done in the past this is what a professor should do and just kind of like taking on that persona through uh discuss, you know engaging with and just you know one my students and suddenly it became quite easy right um and i i think we all do that to a degree it just seems maybe the the tulpamancers are more conscious conscious about it and they also have this kind of element of deep visualization. I when I want to say deep visualization. I'm just kind of multidimensionality of the role that they've created and engaged with. Um, so I could certainly see the possibility of a benefit for sure. Um, I, again, I'm not entirely convinced that this is something I would want to try, but I, I could see that. So I do want to talk about pony topas So this is kind of a subset of uh, of the, the population of, uh, These are, uh, bronies and bronies, and uh, adult men who are into My Little Pony, who, uh, in the Topa community have My Little Pony Topas, And it's certainly not just men, uh, doing this. And so I, I'm going to read a, you know, little, um, uh, Reddit, uh, post regarding this topic. So we have a, horsecraft is the name of our poster uh so horsecraft says about pony tulpas questions slash concerns this is something that's kind of been on my mind for a while and i provide some context i'm sort of young i guess late teens i'm a female student who does homeschooling due to pretty crippling social anxiety depression that kind of stuff those are also the reasons i want i'm wanting to create a topa, amongst other things A few months ago, I made my first attempt at making a Tulpa, one which had a human form. I found that working with him just didn't really work. I didn't feel a connection, and eventually kind of just stopped. I think that I want to restart and try again. This part is going to sound silly, but I don't personally watch MLP, My Little Pony, regularly. But Princess Luna, as a character, is very relatable and has has really spoken to me. I've been thinking it over since... Maybe October, and I know I'm willing to make a topa based off of her, of course, adjusting to whatever changes she wants to make. But I feel like pony topas get such a bad rep. I'm also worried about my previous topa. What would happen to him? I don't want to abandon him, but I don't think I could handle two topas at this point in my life. Note that he wasn't sentient. Hey, so she's worried about breaking up with her post, her other topa. I'm also. <laughs> Yeah, right, and that's and that's the thing. Like, and I I want to point this out. These are real human relationships that these people are experiencing, or that that's their account of it, right? I'm not going to go so far as that they're having real human relationships, because uh, to my mind, I, I would disagree with that assertion. But for them, these are real human, real relationships with other beings, right? Uh, that they're experiencing internally, right, and uh, with all the dimensionality of that, according to their accounts okay
1: okay she does say that she just kind of forgot about it
0: yeah and uh but she has guilt about yeah abandoning this other being right um and so she talks more about little bit my little pony uh and there's this thing about this bad reputation so it's pretty interesting too in this community so there are anime to be anime topas so japanese animation characters uh, and then My Little Pony and, and things like this. So apparently there's some disagreement in the community, and other Tulpa mantors, uh have been critical of this because they said, hey, you're making us all look crazy by having these Tulpas and talking about, about them. And then to which the rejoinder is, well, uh, people already think this about the whole community anyway, so it really doesn't matter if we have My Little Pony Tulpas or anime Tulpas, right? So anyway... What are your thoughts on this?
1: I think you've already maybe touched on this that so they have really strongly transitioned away from seeing it as a supernatural phenomenon. There's very few people you found talking about energies or spirits. They just see it as a, a mind game that has therapeutic benefits. You know, to them, I think the
0: tulpas are real but real in in the sense that they they do exist within their minds and the consciousness of the person who's generated the Tulpa, but their ego, the ego of the Tulpa, the being, is distinct and unique from the original person, right? I think some individuals in this community would argue that the Tulpa's personhood can be equivalent to the original host personhood or personality.
1: So I guess these people just aren't really interested in theorizing about like, how, how is it that I can create creatures with my mind? They just kind of, uh, accept it. It's just a, a lived experience for them. Yes. Yeah. I
0: would say okay. that. that that's my feel on it. I can't speak for the community, but in my readings, I would say that that is probably accurate. Yeah.
1: And that probably reflects what human beings tend to be like, right? Most people tend not to be really interested in uh, theorizing about things or, like, you know, well, what is this thing really, right? Asking philosophical questions about their experiences, but just you know, getting some pragmatic benefit out of the experience. Hmm. Yeah. So that makes sense.
0: Yeah, I you know the more I looked at it, it seemed that for the individuals. Doing this, that they they are self-reporting very positive experiences largely. Um, it commonsensically it would seem to be somewhat it would seem to be dangerous as you're fracturing your identity in this way. Uh, but um, that's largely not so, not what's being reported. And as we saw in that article that I had discussed, uh, there does appear to be some therapeutic benefit here for many people. So I think maybe we should be not too quick to judge, right? Uh, Yeah. This community and uh, the interesting thought experiments that they're doing.
1: Well, I imagine that if you're on Reddit and other internet forums for reading and talking about this, there's going to be a lot of reports that are just nonsense. There are just people um, trolling or making up stories. Then you're going to have people who uh, they're kind of looking for attention and so there's a lot of uh, placebo effects, maybe at work, and they're, they're exaggerating and, you know, they've blown things up in their own mind and then blown them up a little bit more to impress other people. And then there could be this core phenomenon underneath it all, which is, you know, some people who get really into it might be having, you know, different kinds of benefits or different kinds of harms. And I think you said earlier already, you know, it might not be that this is a thing that is, uh, like kind of mental illness. It just might be that there are some mentally ill people that are also into tulpas. So mm-hmm. they have, you know, weird experiences because they're already depressed and they're already anxious and they're already, you know. Yeah, happy. and, and, and it seems happy. that
0: so, at least for some of the people drawn to this, they're drawn to it because they do have uh, mental health issues and this is a way that helps them cope with that. And, yeah. You know, and I think that does make sense. As we talk about yeah. your, like, visualization as...
1: Uh, a therapy model, yeah, it's just that on steroids in many ways, right? Right. Well, so ma- like I said, so many anxious and depressed people get locked into a circuit where they're just always thinking about how they're depressed or they're always thinking about how they're anxious. And so if they can think about anything else, even if it's an imaginary pony, that's a step forward.
0: Just yeah, Rob- a- absolutely. Oh, okay. And it is important to note that not all people who – uh, engage in topomancy. Have mental health issues. Um, they just enjoy I mean, it, right? Right.
1: Yeah. So, right. Not everyone uh, is creative, right? And like I said at the beginning of the podcast, too, children seem to be a paradigmatic example of this with their imaginary friends. They're doing something that sounds like a topa, that nobody calls it that. You know, they just accept that they have a being that's accompanying them and such, and we all accept that there's nothing um, wrong with them they're not mentally ill. It's just the thing that children do. All right. So Dane, I would like to turn
0: it over to you. I think we should sink our teeth into the history and start working our way towards the paranormal aspect of this, which I think is probably what most people have been waiting for.
1: All right. So, um, I was interested in, you know, where this word come from Tolpa. why are we talking about it at all in that, in that way? and so i found that uh, according to milks and laycock they're professors of philosophy and religion at texas state university the word tulpa first occurs in a book by a french buddhist woman Uh, she wrote in 1930 it's called magic and mystery in tibet so it's the memoirs of this very adventurous woman who uh, she converted to buddhism in the early 20th century and then she wanted to learn about Buddhism from the Tibetan masters. So she went over to India and she actually gained access to Tibet uh, at a time when it was a closed country, you couldn't get into it. But she found a way to sneak into Tibet and allegedly she met with the Dalai Lama who through an interpreter told her that she needed to learn Tibetan. Then she went and studied under a Tibetan master, a Lama. She mastered the art of I think it's called stumo I have written down stumo it's the art of uh, generating heat from your body so she was able to melt snow with her body and when she proved that she could do this she was declared a llama herself and she then spent most of her life traveling around the Far East so India Tibet China at one point she goes into the the forbidden city In Tibet Lhasa and um, she wrote books about this and she got the Western world really really into Tibetan Buddhism so uh, she's kind of our like entry point cultural entry point for stories about what's happening in Tibet and what the Tibetan Buddhist religion is like so her books are still published today I just saw one in a bookstore up in uh, I'm in Connecticut, I was up in mystic over the weekend and I saw a bookstore they had a magic and mystery in Tibet actually for sale in the bookstore. So um, here's a quote I'm going to give you a quote where uh, her name's David Neal. Alexander David Neal is talking about the Tibetan religion and I hope this helps you get a sense of why this caught fire in the Western world. So she's talking about the Tibetan religion, but she frames it in, a, in kind of a pseudo-scientific way. She says, All facts, which in other countries are considered miraculous, or in other way are ascribed to ordinary interference of beings belonging to other worlds, are considered by Tibetans to be aspects of secret lore. May it be said once more, secret lore is not to be understood as an esoteric Buddhist doctrine, but as traditional erudition and methods of realizing aims that are not necessarily spiritual. Or psychic phenomena the secret of psychic training as Tibetans conceive it consists in developing a power of concentration of mind greatly surpassing even that of men who are by nature the most gifted in this respect mystic masters affirm that by the means of such concentration of mind waves of energy are produced which can be used in different ways so in this book David Neal says that the Tibetan masters used their mind waves to achieve a variety of goals. So they would uh, enchant ordinary items like knives, scarves and medicine to make magic tokens that would bestow a vital energy, courage or protection on anyone who possesses them. They could directly give energy to other people or drain energy away from them. They could animate dead or non-living things causing them to come to life. They can attract or trap supernatural beings They can create objects out of nothing, they can project doubles of themselves, often ghost-like in movement and appearance, and they can create entirely new living beings with their own independent life force. That last category of being, she calls tulpa, and she says a tulpa is a magic formation generated by a powerful concentration of thought, and here's a longer quote on that. Tibetan mystics affirm that adepts well-trained in concentration are capable of visualizing the forms imagined by them and can thus create any kind of phantom, men, deities, animals, inanimate objects, landscapes, and so forth. These phantoms do not always appear as impalpable mirages. They are tangible and endowed with all the faculties and qualities naturally pertaining to the beings or things of which they have the appearance. For instance, a phantom horse trots and neighs. The phantom rider who rides it can get off his beast, speak with a traveler on the road, and behave in every way like a real person. A phantom horse, excuse me, a phantom house will shelter real travelers, and so on. So a big part of magic and mystery in Tibet is just David Neal describing different Tibetan beliefs and practices associated with animating objects and creating paranormal phenomenon with their mind
0: so one thing i think is really interesting about that is the that it's ta- the tangibility of the kind of topa phenomenon which is it as we kind of get into our discussions later uh what is in paranormal communities described as topa is perhaps much more spectral than seeing uh if i'm understanding correctly and feeling someone who's just like the topa is tangible it's real it has materiality in uh all respects is that correct am i understanding that correctly it'll it could be
1: you know feel like the real thing or it could sound like the real thing yeah but you know it's not always that way so it seems to me from reading the book that it's sort of like the more energy you put into it the better the result and the better you are at doing what you're doing the better the result so a real ascended master who concentrates can maybe generate a complete landscape But maybe you or I would have to work really hard at get bringing like a little mouse creature into existence and even then it might be kind of shadowy. In fact, I have a story here from the book where she talks about somebody who manifested a tulpa, but it has sort of non-palpable, semi-palpable form. So I'll read this right now. Oh, before you read that, I just want to say so it'd be kind of like so, you
0: know, as you know, I'm not very good at baking, but I can make something that resembles a cake, right? Uh, So it would be kind of like, if I make a cake, I make something that resembles a cake versus, you know, somebody like a Michelin chef and baker. And that would be like the ideal form of the cake. When we think of cake, it would be like, yes, this is cake, right? Uh, Definitely. So that would be, I think, a good, yeah, so that, that certainly makes sense in this context. All right.
1: Here's the quote. A Tibetan painter, a fervent worshiper of wrathful deities who took a peculiar delight in drawing their terrible forms, came one afternoon to pay me a visit. I noticed behind him the somewhat nebulous shape of one of the fantastic beings, which often appeared in his paintings. I made a startled gesture, and the astonished artist took a few steps towards me, asking what was the matter. I noticed that the phantom did not follow him, And quickly, thrusting my visitor aside, I walked to the apparition with one arm stretched in front of me. My hand reached the foggy form. I felt as if touching a soft object, whose substance gave way under the slight push, and the vision vanished. The painter confessed in answer to my questions that he had been performing a dub top right during the last few weeks, calling on the deity whose form I had dimly perceived and that the very day he had worked the whole morning on a painting of that same deity. In fact, the Tibetan's thoughts were entirely concentrated on the deity whose help he wished to secure, for a rather mischievous undertaking. He himself had not seen the phantom." So she never says what the mischievous undertaking was, which I'm curious about. But, um, you know, the idea there is that, you know, he didn't mean to bring it into existence. He was just so focused, though, on this personal deity that he was into painting and asking for help that it manifested as a kind of phantom so uh, in this kind of
0: you know paradigm of uh, that we're being presented with here um as a thought form is generated it, it would almost seem that in some cases or at the very least in this case is that the observer plays a role in this as well so for other people experiencing the tulpa there might be some level of, uh, I don't know, we call it psychic sensitivity that comes into play in terms of how they are able to perceive and engage with it. Uh, yeah, I mean, not not always, I guess, but certainly in this case, it would seem that is what's going on.
1: Yeah, it might have been that David Neal was better at perceiving tulpas and spiritual things than uh, the guy was who produced it. I mean, and tulpas can also be generated by entire groups of people, according to magic and mystery in Tibet. So uh, David Neal relates a story of some traveler who lost his hat in a storm. And then because Tibetan tradition holds that if you lose your hat in a storm, it's bad luck to pick it back up, he just let it go. And the hat had flaps on the sides, and it landed on a thicket in the road. And so he left it where it was, and subsequent people who came by would see the thicket with the hat poking up, and it looked like there was a person, like you were know, sitting there and just their heads poking out of the thicket and they're watching. So people began telling stories about there being a creature in the thicket. They started talking then about there being a creature at the end of the wood, and then the story goes that someone suggested it was a devil or a demon, and subsequently the hat was seen moving around and stalking groups of people. And she concludes, the hat had been animated by the many thoughts concentrated on it. So here's a case where, at least according to the Tibetans, uh, something was brought to life unintentionally, merely because many people believed it was alive. It came to life. So the overall impression that I got from reading magic and mystery in Tibet you know, as the origin of the word Tulpa, for the Tibetans, there's a strong idea that, you know, you have, you have this psychic energy inside of you, and you can push it out, you can make things happen, depending on how much, you know, innate energy you have that you're born with, and how much concentration you build up. So how much work, effort, intensity you put into it. Uh, and then those things sort of determine the intensity of the result. So it's sort of like a A silly putty model of reality where everything's made of mind stuff and you just can mold mind stuff right if you're good at it you you make a better mind thing than somebody else and uh, that is supposedly where the word Tulpa originally comes from now uh, that's just Milks and Laycock are are students of or scholars of philosophy and religion and that's their take I also found it mentioned in the book, The Mothman Prophecies by John Keel, which we might have a whole podcast episode on sometime, but uh, that's an incident in the late sixties when there was a creature running around West Virginia and John Keel was a reporter. He just wrote a book about it, about people seeing this monster in West Virginia. And he mentions in his book, he's like, well, maybe it was a tulpa. Maybe people, because they had heard some stories about big birds, Began to imagine big birds caused big birds to actually be out there, and then that became the Mothman.
0: So I, I think that's certainly interesting, and, uh, and and as we've discussed out outside of this podcast, is that the tulpa could be used as an explanation for a lot of paranormal uh, phenomenon. If if we uh, take for granted, if we just accept that tulpas are real or you know for taking it with that mindset um and so for instance uh like cryptid like bigfoot or in florida where i had recently lived uh skunk Ape, right you have all these sightings and a the map particularly in Florida, all these sightings map uh the map of these sightings that was aggregated by one of the local major newspapers right and kind of talking about the history of this right and so perhaps there's a cryptid there perhaps there's nothing there or perhaps this thing has now entered the collective consciousness, right? And it's generated this skunky topo, which is like a scrawny Bigfoot that smells awful and lives in the swamps, right? Um, Definitely. And we get these, you know, so that, if we accept, okay, people are seeing something real in those other cases. We can, If we accept that, I'm not saying that we do, um, then what are they seeing? Is it the that actual thing? Is it an actual skunk ape? Or is it a tulpa, right? Right. And much like in that hat scenario, uh, this idea has been given uh, life by many people, right, as they kind of encounter this concept of the skunk ape.
1: Definitely. Yeah, I think that's it. I think, and there's, like you're pointing out, varying levels at which the tulpa could be acting. So it could be a purely psychological level where, like with the hat, well you think that the hat's a person, and so in your mind you start to see the other parts, right, you start to see the rest of a creature there, because you're just, your imagination is just filling things in. And then if a story goes around the town that there's a creature at the end of town, everybody starts to see it, right, because everybody's primed to see it. And you could have a socially constructed, Monster that way where like everybody's seeing the thing in the thickets because they all expect to see the thing in the thickets, right? But then you know, and there could also be another dimension to it There could be a further level where yeah because they're seeing it, you know, it, it becomes animated Maybe the hats really moving around and chasing people. That's certainly the Tibetan take on it Which you know, which the Tibetan take is what got Westerners interested in this whole idea of making things happen with our minds
0: Yeah, awesome
1: Um, And as we've talked
0: about the collective action, and the ability to collectively create tulpas, um, I would be remiss not to discuss uh, Conjuring Philip. So Conjuring Philip, it was a documentary I watched. I'm not uh, recommending this to any of our our listeners, uh, but it was a rather interesting uh, documentary regarding an experiment that was done uh, by a pair, Toronto Parasy- uh, Parapsychological Research Society. Um, and so there's like um, some pretty smart people involved. There's a geneticist, uh, chairperson of Mensa, industrial designer, and some wise accountant, heating engineer, it's just so real, you know, um, professional people, serious people who were interested in the paranormal. And so they attempted to... Uh, create a tulpa. Uh, uh, They created a fictional character and they flushed him out. The fictional character is his name Philip. Um, And and Philip was uh, an Englishman born in the 1600s and he was knighted at the age of 16. A spy and warrior and so this whole backstory it tragically ends in suicide. And again, he is a created character. They, they, they created this fictional character. And then through using kind of classic uh techniques, you know, like kind of the table technique and the moving table thing, they attempted to contact Philip, okay? And so in the documentary, they contact Philip. They engage Philip in conversation. He moves the table that their hands are on. Um... and and it's pretty interesting it's clear it's pretty clear that they believe this is what's happening that they've they've contacted this being and this being would be one that they've created obviously because it's a fictional being uh however it can be potentially debunked debunked by the theory of ideomotor action right so idiomotor action is sub is the idea that are that we can kind of subconsciously move, so we can have movements that we are not consciously aware of that are then are directed by the subconscious. Uh, and so, according to that explanation, they weren't actually talking to a supernatural tulpa; they'd more or less generated this uh, collective dream, if you will, the subconscious phenomenon that they were sharing through their discourse and communication. And they themselves were moving the table, but they were actually weren't aware of it. Now, uh, uh, Faraday, uh, the scientist Faraday, de- did some work in this in debunking that kind of classical table technique of seances. And so what he did is he put down wax paper on the table, uh, and, and the idea is like, well, if these people are moving the table, then they're going to rip the paper, obviously, because their fingers are going to be moving Uh, And and he said, look, yeah, they ripped the paper. He's like, this is, they're moving the table, you know, and I I guess um, yeah, the action, it, it seems that it is arising from the people, but just because the people, there's not a psychokinetic phenomenon going on, I guess doesn't discount the possibility that those movements are being directed by some kind of. Uh, supernatural force or idea. Now, interestingly, too, in the same documentary, well, they looked at a group, uh, more, much more modern group, who was doing the same thing, except they weren't attempting to contact a tulpa; they were attempting to contact a spirit. Which is also, as we kind of dive into this, there's many parallels between the idea of summoning spirits and um, summoning a tulpa, right? And so if we kind of go down that rabbit hole, it begs the question, we say, okay, people are generating tulpas, right? There's these, this psychokinetic paranormal phenomenon, this being that's being generated by the mind. But the question is, okay, if we accept that there's this being, right, um, is it actually being generated by these people's minds? Or perhaps have they invited some sinister, or maybe not sinister force and into their lives through this action
1: yeah that's going to be a difficult question to to answer right because if, if there's some sinister force that wants to enter your life and poses a tulpa i don't i don't know how you to tell that it's not a tulpa right how do you tell the difference between tulpa you make in that shows up it shows up and decides, and decides to, to say it's a tulpa.
0: Yeah, and certainly, I mean, in the most mainstream American spiritual practice is Christianity, obviously. And Christianity prohibits uh, trying to contact spirits like this for the reason that they could be familiar spirits, right? So demons right. and dark forces disguising themselves as uh, a, a deceased loved one to, to trick the person and bring havoc and evil into their lives. And so uh, I, I think if the idea of a topa, uh, may simply just be creating a form, a thought form, right? And if we take that, uh, interpretation of things to its natural extension, if all of it is required is the creation of a thought form for some ethereal being to inhabit, well, it it may not matter if that's approached as a topa or a dead person, the thought form is being created, the door is open and then bam. And again, I'm not advocating that viewpoint. However, it does bear talking about, and I've, it would be, I think, a, a very popular interpretation of this phenomenon in our modern spiritual culture.
1: Yeah, that seems right. That, you know, the Catholic Church says if you're talking to spirits, you're talking to demons, right? There are only evil spirits out there to talk to. Let's. Well, it's not quite true, but... Well, no, but if you've, think- like,
0: invited them, if you've done, you're not supposed to summon them, right? So the, the, yeah. that's their whole thing. They do allow for, um, they do allow for kind of visitations from beyond, but it's kind of a gray area. It's not really something that's talked about a lot, um, I right. mean, canonically, but that is different from trying to summon a spirit, which is definitely prohibited.
1: Yeah, so it sounds like the Conjuring Phillips story was where they were just using all the accoutrements of of uh, of seances. It was just a seance, but they saw themselves as doing something that was non-spiritual. They saw themselves as constructing a being. Well, like- I think they
0: believed that it was spiritual. um that they were generating psychokinetic phenomenon through this ah. yes that ultimately is what they they believed as a result of this experiment that they had generated this collectively this psychokinetic phenomenon through um, this practice
1: that's interesting yeah it's an interesting question whether that's spiritual or not cuz one of the things that David Neal says in her writings about the Tibetans she's saying that they're not as they're not as mystical and you know, into a woo spiritual stuff as you think, because really they see it all as, you know, it's all an energy, right? A psychic energy that just, just naturally in the world, naturally in your mind. And so, you know, it's, it's not a spiritual thing. It's just a scientific thing for her. And then it sounds like these people have the same mindset, but then, you know, there's a question of, so if there is psychokinetic energy, is that a spiritual thing or not? So, what are your theories on
0: really what the tulpa could be?
1: So, I'll call the first view tulpa skepticism. So it could be that tulpas are just wishful thinking, product of delusions. They're just stories. You know, at their best, they're a fun game, and at their worst, worst, they're symptoms of mental illness. So that's tulpa skepticism: is that all the phenomena can be explained entirely through you know traditional psychology and then uh, there could be an extended mind tulpa theory so this is the view that you know maybe tulpas really do exist in the sense that they're a partition of our own mind so it's a way to access your unconscious um, on this view you know the tulpa could be useful because you're tapping into unconscious resources that aren't always you know available to you it could also even be dangerous just like um, having a split personality can be dangerous, right? And so uh, maybe the tulpa could even have ideas or things that are kind of at odds with what you would think because it's actually drawing from different parts of your own brain. So that's the extended mind tulpa view, which I think goes a little bit beyond standard psychology. That's that's maybe would be a controversial view that a psychologist might hold in advance. But I think you're still well within the world of like a materialist take on the phenomenon then you might go further and will step outside of science I have extended mind tulpa but we'll just add psychic powers so in this view the tulpa it is just a partition of your own mind it's like a you know just a little chunk of you but um because you have latent psychic powers the tulpa might do things in the real world that you know, you can't ordinarily do with your mind. Maybe it's actually able to move things around, or it actually has, you know, insights into what other people are thinking through ESP. Again, all its powers would ultimately come from you, but it might be because psychic powers are real under this hypothesis. um, Extraordinary things could happen through the tulpa. So that's a third view. A fourth view, tulpa naturalism. Maybe Tulbas are just features of the natural world. You know, it's just the case that people have psychokinetic abilities and, and we can put some of our energy out there and it can spin off and take its own life, it can keep going on its own and become independent of us. So this is the view that I think, um, the, uh, the Tibetans have according to, to David Neal. Although I should say, I haven't said this before. Like, I don't know, David Neal's got her own take on the Tibetans and don't. Don't like try to quote this and or use this in like a like a you got to write a paper for a class on the Tibetan Buddhists. So I would do more research before you trust her take. Um, but that's another view. Could be that tulpas are just natural features of the world because we have an, uh, psychic energy and we can give it away and it can come to life on its own. And then uh, the last view, which you talked about, Chris, is a tulpa tulpa imposter theory. So there's a the view that there are paranormal beings out there independent of us and we attract them when we try to tulpamance we bring them into our lives and they will pose as our own creation because they have some uh, ulterior agenda so maybe they draw energy from us or maybe they're trying to just trick or deceive us and they enjoy that they enjoy being mischievous some of the yeah.
0: accounts that I read certainly uh well I I would probably err on the side of mental health issues of these individuals and In modern who lost control of their tulpas and has taken over their body. And uh there's there were several different, you know, various accounts like this that I saw and again read it, so how true are they? But we'll just take for granted for a moment and say, okay, these are true. I think I favor the psychological theory, but I mean, certainly, it sounds a lot like demon possession as well, right? So yeah. It's just like they've invited this thing in their life, and it's now taking control of their body, right? And it's destroying their lives. It's like harming other people, or there's self-harm going on, right? And so there's a very classically uh, like that, although I didn't read any accounts where, like, the person had acquired new ability, abilities, like, they were speaking in another language with their tulpa, which you know, which would be like, okay, if they spontaneously acquired the ability to speak another language, then maybe, maybe I would be more likely to err on the side of, of something like that if there's something more supernatural-like going on in terms of a sign. But nonetheless, it can fit that paradigm.
1: Definitely. It does sound like it could fit into the uh, possession paradigm. So, yeah, you could call the imposter theory the uh, demonic tulpa theory as well.
0: Yeah, well, excellent. All
1: right. All right, well, I want to end with uh, one last story, if I may, from David Neal. Yes, please. This is a story she told about uh, just what she learned about a practice of uh, recruiting a personal deity as an avatar or a kind of guardian angel called a yidam. So it's a process that takes a long time. Here's what she says about it. The master orders his disciple to shut himself in prayer and meditation, taking his yidam, which is a tutelary deity, as the object of contemplation. The novice, dwelling in strict seclusion, concentrates his thoughts on the yidam, imagining him in the shape and form ascribed to him in books and images. Repeating certain mystic formulas are parts of the exercises, of which the aim is to cause the yidam to appear to his worshiper, at least such is the aim that the master points out to, to the beginner. The pupil breaks his contemplation during the time strictly necessary to eat and the very short time allowed for sleep. Often the recluse does not lie down and only dozes. Months and even years may elapse in that way. Occasionally the master inquires about the progress of his pupil. At last a day comes when the novice informs him he has reaped the fruit of his exertion. The Yidam has appeared. As a rule, the vision has been nebulous and lasted only a little while. The master declares it is encouraging success, but not as yet a definitive result. It is desirable that the recluse should enjoy the hallowed company of his protector. The apprentice cannot but agree and continues his effort. A long time again elapses. Then the Yidam is fixed and the recluse sees them as always present in the middle of the monastery. This is most excellent, answers the master when he is informed of the fact, but you must seek a still greater favor. You must pursue your meditation until you are able to touch with your head the feet of the Yiddo, until he blesses you and speaks to you. Through the previous stages have taken long. They may be considered the easiest part of the process. The following are much more arduous to attain, and only a small minority of novices meet with success. These successful disciples see the yidam taking on life. They distinctly feel the touch of his feet. When prostrated, they lay their hand on them. They feel the weight of his hands when he blesses them. They see his eyes moving, his lips parting. He speaks. You have reached the desired goal, says the guru to his exultant disciple. I have nothing more to teach you. You have won the favors of a protector, mightier than I. Certain disciples thank the Lama, and proud of their achievement, return to their monastery or establish themselves in a hermitage, and spend the remainder of their life playing with their phantom. On the contrary, others trembling in mental agony, prostrate themselves at their guru's feet, and confess some awful sin. Doubts have arisen in their mind, which, in spite of strenuous efforts, they have not been able to overcome. Before the Yidam himself, even when he spoke to them, or when they touched him, the thought has arisen in them that they contemplated a mere phantasmagora, which they had themselves created. The master appears conflicted by this confession. He says the unbeliever must return and begin his training all over again in order to conquer his incredulity, so ungrateful to the Yidam who has favored him. Once undermined, faith felled faith seldom regains a firm footing if the great respect which orientals feel for their religious teacher did not restrain them these incredulous disciples would probably yield to the temptation of giving up the religious life their long training having ended in materialism but nearly all of them hold on to it for if they doubt the reality of their yinim they never doubt their master's wisdom after a time the disciple repeats the same confession It is even more positive than the first time. There is no longer any question of doubt. He is thoroughly convinced that the Yidam is produced by his mind and has no existence than that which he has lent him. The master tells him, that is exactly what it is necessary for you to realize. Gods, demons, the whole universe are but a mirage, which exists in the mind, springs from it, and sinks into it.
0: Very good. Well, thank you, listeners, for joining us our first episode of the Spectral Skull Session. Please keep an eye out for future talks.
1: Bye, everybody.